Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at understanding how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm Davis Johnson, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus, as every other week, we walk through a few passages in the Bible from a cross-centered point of view, before answering a but-what-about question that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. Well, welcome back to another season of the Red Tree Pod. I am Davis, joined here by my co-host, Chris Wachter, but not just Chris. We have another co-host now that is joining the Red Tree Pod, uh, and she, yes, she is the best thing I think Red Tree might have going for it. Not an overstatement. Uh, I just read one of her articles that is still yet to come out and uh, just had me flabbergasted. It was about the end of the world and how that related to the riots that were happening in Minneapolis and then all of it tied back into the cross. Uh, excited for all of you to read that. But I am talking about Laura Rhinus. If you're familiar with Red Tree, you've read her stuff. And I am giddy to get a microphone in front of her and have her join us as we walk through passages together. So uh, we don't want to hear from Chris yet. We want to hear from Laura. Laura, did I miss anything in that intro uh, of who you are? Did I describe you well? Is there anything you want to add? If not, how are you today? How was your summer? How, is, how are you since we saw you last? And for our listeners, this is the first time they've seen you. So you can go back as far as you'd like. Yeah, no, that's that was a great introduction. If you want, I'll just pass it right back to you so you can do it again. That was just... <laughs> all right, from the top. Yes. Yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this is that's all I actually needed from this. So that's I'm done now. Uh yeah, no, my name's Laura. Um used to live in Minneapolis, which is why or how I got connected with Chris here and then through Chris Davis. Uh recently, well, I guess it's not recently, about two years ago, we live or moved back to Michigan. Um, which is where I live with my husband, Paul, and my three kids. Um, today was their first day, first full day back at school. So it's been a nice, quiet day for me. I'm not, I don't get very sad when we go back to school. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I work with, uh, work at Target doing coffee in the Starbucks. And I can't be sad about that because it's not a bad way to spend your day. Um, but yeah, no, I'm just happy to be here. Love it. We're happy to have you. How are you doing, yeah. Chris, since we saw you last? Oh, I'm doing well. Also, welcome, Laura. I should start by saying it's great to see you. I can see you. I guess this is an audio <laughs> podcast, but um, it's good to see you and, and hear you again. Um, yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, it's good to see you too, Davis. It's been a been a good summer break, I think, for for the Walker clan. We uh, traveled to Washington, D.C. for a week. We we're up north for a bit, like a good, like all good Minnesotans do. Usually, if you don't know someone with a cabin, there's something wrong with you, I think. And uh, so we, we uh, or so it seems. But uh, yeah, we had some good time up north, and um, and uh, yeah, our kids are back in school as well. We have a a senior in high school, and our younger two just made the switch from middle school and grade school, respectively. So they kind of moved, both moved up. So they had some big changes and did really well yesterday. But I think they're exhausted and. Um, but, uh, 
but yeah, I like Laura, I too am excited to be back and to be talking Bible and grace and grace and all of life and all of scripture with you guys. I'm looking forward to a second season. I love Davis, it. how about you, man? How's life? Yeah, life is good. I, I like that you're throwing shade already in the first episode for those non-cabin goers. Uh, <laughs> we, we, I, I did go to a cabin this summer, but I still feel offended by you saying yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we just had some good time up north and, and just vacationing where we could. Summer's a good time to just rest and recharge, and, and we mm. definitely felt that. Uh, except for the end of the summer, where uh, we all got together with uh, just a small group of friends. Probably 15 people were there. This is a couple weeks ago. And I think it was 80% of the people there. I don't know what that would be of 15, uh, but 80% of us went down with some type of viral stomach, nasty, violent flu. Uh, so my wife and kid and then yeah, everyone else. And it was like the exorcism in my house there for 24 hours. Uh, it was I, somehow I didn't get it, which I'm thankful for, but it was almost worse, like sitting in for the next three or four days, like just waiting, <laughs> just expecting to cancel plans from the porcelain throne. Uh, but yeah, somehow, somehow touched it. It was, it was wild, but that's not why we're here. We're not here to talk about viral sicknesses. No, we're here today actually to discuss Genesis 22, uh, for our Psalm. We're going to be, uh, backtracking all the way back to the beginning here on Psalm three. Then we're going to be picking back in up in second uh, Corinthians six, the first 13 verses there. And then for our, but what about section, which if you're unfamiliar, that's when we look at a passage of scripture that seems to fly in the face of basically everything we're doing here at red tree and uh, just slow down with it and ask what, what does it actually mean in light of Jesus and his good news and uh, find some pretty good surprises. And, and this passage is no different. Um, it's, called by many the most difficult parable or and even passage in all of scripture and that is that of the shrewd manager in chapter 16 of luke's gospel so eager to talk about that one but before we do uh let's back up to genesis 22 and if you did not grow up in church you still are likely familiar with this story it's one of the more famous stories of Father Abraham um, and his not great dad. Well, this actually is one of his good dad moments. He's told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac up on a mountain on an altar. <laughs> and uh, he's kind of going back and forth with his son, you know, taking him on this journey. And his son's kind of picking up on, like, hey, some things are missing here. And, God, and Abraham just says, God's going to provide. And uh, ultimately, he he lays his son down on the altar, and and right when he's going to throw the knife to to slay his own son, uh, an angel interrupts him, and basically says, uh, "You don't do that. Um, I know now, based on your actions, that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son." So this is uh, this is a this is a pretty big deal passage. It's something that I think um, I've seen mocked on the likes of like a Family Guy. Um, I've seen some theologians spend some pretty deep time in this one, really trying to mine it for all of its gold. Uh, and and there's a lot lot of gold I think to be found uh, in the, in this passage. So uh, let me hand it over to you guys first. What do you what do you what are you seeing here in Genesis 22? Well, um, definitely thick with typology in this one, isn't it? Um, I feel like Jesus is all over here just with the pictures um, that are in this one, even just to the specific words that are being used. Um, 
you know, you have this father who is taking his son and in verse two, it says, you know, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Um, and I feel like that's a direct callback, right, to God and his only son, Jesus, who during Jesus's baptism even says, you know, you are my beloved son. Um, just very clear connection there. Um, and then even just, you know, going up with two young men, and I feel like that's such a small little detail, but you have the three crosses on the hill, you know, God's only son with the, the two thieves there. Um Abraham putting the wood on Isaac and having him carry it up the mountain. I feel like a clear connection to Jesus carrying the cross up there. Um, and then obviously um, the substitution of the ram for his son, but that's kind of in reverse, isn't it? Because Jesus has been substituted for us um, on the cross. I just feel like it just, it's so rife with just pictures just constantly throwing us back or I guess forward to the gospels and to the cross and what's to come. Um, just very cool. Um, another thing I was kind of excited to see, you know, all of those here I am's um, that you see, there's three of them that Abraham is talking back to God. Um, we see that a few times in scripture. Um, one of them is here. Another one is with um, the calling of Samuel uh, with Elijah, um, but we also see it in Isaiah, which I thought was pretty cool, um, in Isaiah 65, 1, and it's God talking here, and he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name, and I just think, you know, it's just one of those times where I just think scripture just like drives home that point and it's it's times like this where i'm like it's so obvious that scripture is god breathed because of all of these like straight connections straight arrows through the text to jesus but i feel like on the cross that is jesus's own little here i am moment um where you know god's son is is here i am i am the substitute i am the sacrifice um i just think that that just is very cool to me Love that. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the typology is so thick, you know, and it, we don't always get this type of thickness maybe of it in a story. Um, and I think, you know, I think of the early reformers actually to, you know, 500 years ago who would say, I think Zwingli was one of them, but I think they all did. And they, they would chimed in on this passage and said, actually, you can't really understand this passage apart from Jesus, you know, and seeing him as the, the ultimate Isaac, the ultimate son who, was probably in his early twenties when this happened best we can guess. And so he was a willing sacrifice. He wasn't two years old, right. Uh, being kind of laid down and uh, not being able to push back his dad's strength, but, but he was a willing sacrifice. Um, also seeing Jesus and the lamb. I mean, you mentioned all this, Laura, but love the layeredness of this. It's not, we're not just looking for an aspect or a type or a glimpse of Jesus, but we're seeing him everywhere as different kinds of substitutes. You know, he, he surprises us in the story from different angles, right? When we think we've figured it out, maybe oh, there he is again, and there's his voice and there's his loving actions. And there's a twist and a surprise in the story when we thought it was about this um, and, or us, maybe all of a sudden we find out it's more about, about him. Uh, and one thing I want to add here too, uh, and I think Davis, you and I, you were the one that maybe shared some version of this with me a while ago, but uh, Genesis 22, uh, 
is the only time in scripture we see God ask someone to do something wrong, like, like lawfully wrong, like kill your son. Um, and, and I think that, and that's the case because uh, in that, then we have a story of someone choosing faith over law, uh, because choosing law would be the morally right thing for Abraham to do here. Right. So saying no, in this case would be the morally kind of lawful thing for Abraham to do. But what we have is Abraham trusting God. And sometimes in the story, trust and law are opposites. It reminds me of Hosea 6, 6, where, where the prophets and Jesus picks up on this in the gospels, where it says, um, that mercy is greater than sacrifice. So that there's, and, and love is bigger than law. And I think you have a glimpse of that here, 22 chapters into the whole Bible, you have, uh, a surmounting or kind of a coming over the law, uh, a stepping aside from it, uh, kind of an abdicating, uh, or a faith kind of wins the day ra rather than just this obvious kind of law path. And, uh, and, of course, as we keep reading, we see that, that Jesus comes to distance himself from Moses, not to keep in step with him, but to bring us grace and to, and to usher in an era of faith and trust alone in him, uh, not maintaining uh, the rules or the simple commands. Mm. Yeah, it was uh, Alan Jacobs. He's a, he's a theologian. I, he might be at Baylor now, uh, but he converted me into becoming a fan of Cormac McCarthy. If you guys know him, he's, he's an author who actually recently passed away, but he writes some pretty kind of dark novels. Like the, the setting that you're in is not like a fun headspace. It's uh, he wrote this book called the road where this father and son are kind of operating this post-apocalyptic era. That's just about the worst thing you can imagine. Um, and Alan Jacobs basically wrote an essay on, on this passage and this very complicated dynamic of being told to do something that was wrong and how that's basically what the road is about of this father actually doing the opposite of keeping his son alive in the worst possible circumstances, because against all hope in hope, he somehow believes that there's goodness somewhere uh, beyond the horizon. And so I uh, can't recommend uh, that essay highly enough. And I, I actually wouldn't read the road though, without reading the essay, because it's, it's just a dark book, but I, yeah, I have all yeah. of a sudden a, a pretty big fan of it. Uh, well, one more thing I'd say about this passage too, is uh, I actually early in seminary, you know, they have us, you know, communicate in via, uh, various courses. And um, I'm going to pick on one of my fellow students because we were all just terrible preachers uh, when you start seminary. And that's, that's good. I think that's why it's there. But I remember sitting through one uh, uh, sermon on this passage and he began so good because he, he set it up with this. He said, this is the most important moment in Abraham's life. And I thought, oh, that's so good. It's, But you can really go two ways with this. You know, a, a road diverges into two paths here. One <laughs> of them is is spot on and i think it's exactly what you guys have been saying here about you know this he's gonna he, he he can resemble the whole story like he has an opportunity to be a type of the thing that god is doing without even knowing it by just following following god and where he's leading but the other path which is unfortunately the route he took uh, feels a lot more like a type of spiritual boot camp where you have this drill sergeant yelling at you that you're really bad at your job. And even if you're doing the right things, you still could be doing more because I'm just yelling at you to do more. <laughs> and that was the route he unfortunately took, which was to say, 
this was the most important moment in his life because he f- finally got it right when God tested him, right? Just to zoom in on this, because that's the, I mean, the, la- the passage uses the language of testing, uh, but to really zoom in on that and say, this is the whole point of this passage that, that he was tested and he finally nailed it, which was, again, to ignore the number of times that Abraham has turned left when he should have gone right, to fail the test that God has been laying out before him. Uh, not to even mention the ways he's already pimped out his wife more than once, I think, by the time we yep. get to chapter 22. Um, and so what does this do? Well, it, the implication of saying that, of teaching that, is to say that God is always testing you, and you should really be ready to get it right like Abraham, which is kind of where, where it went. And then the gospel be kind of it kind of gets added as this addendum of like, well, just in case you fail, you always got Jesus. But it, it just leaves you wanting and, and it leaves you in the dark going, when is he testing me? How is he testing me? Am I supposed mm-hmm. to hurt someone? Um, and like we say a lot on this podcast and in our writing, well, the, the first way to understand scripture is to, to first step aside, put yourself in the parentheses and look for who this is about. And, and like you guys have been saying, this, is, this isn't about us first and foremost replicating Abraham. This is about looking for who the one the scriptures say they're ultimately about, which is the Messiah who suffered on our behalf. Um, and Laura, I love that you pointed out that language of the, the son whom he loved, because that comes out again at the end of uh, this passage where he just says, now I know that you love me, now that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, which I think in light of the cross, this is right. God speaking to us that now we can know that God loves us because he did not withhold his son, his, his only son whom he loves, which... Any day of the week, this is good news to hear from outside of us. And so with that, uh, let's, now that I've ripped on a friend, uh, that feels right. We're throwing shade. Laura, you're next. You got to throw shade at someone. All right. In give love. Me, give me time. Give me time. Speaking truth in love. <laughs> Hold no. on. Let me think about it. <laughs> Present company minute. excluded. Oh, uh, well, I need more time then. <laughs> uh, well, let's look at Psalm 3. It's short eight verses here. Psalm 3. I'm actually, I'm just going to read it and then we can talk about it a little bit. It says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. That's the NIV. I know some translations uh, turn some of the pronouns a little bit, and uh, but yeah. With that in mind, what do you, what are you guys seeing here in this short, epic psalm? I think one thing for me that stands out uh, when I read this is the phrase, kind of the second half of verse four, where well, actually all of verse four, where he says, "I called out to the Lord." And he answers me from his holy mountain. And that that just, um, again, kind of on a typological level, but just makes me think of the theme of mountains, I guess, more broadly in scripture, but how uh, the ultimate mountain we look to as Christians is what the prophets call Mount Zion. And in a more historical sense, what we call Mount, uh, Mount Calvary uh, or Golgotha in the New Testament where Jesus dies. And um, But in that kind of poetically here, we see... Uh, uh, a man just like us and David, uh, a, a man who's threatened, a man who's in dis- uh, who's in despair, who has enemies, who's suffering, uh, calling out to God. And I think in the New Testament, you see calling out to God is something that's decidedly 
not an old covenant thing. Of course, we see it there, but in terms of like what it means to be saved, what it means to be in covenant with God in, in an old covenant kind of way or testament way of thinking, it was it was do the law. It was maintain the rules. Uh, and then in like in places like Romans 10, Paul says, actually, in the New Testament, though, there's another way. And it has to do with calling on God, crying out to him alone and uh, relying on him to do all of the heavy lifting of our salvation. And so to see it linked here with kind of a cruciform or kind of cross looking ahead to uh, poetic imagery, I think is just beautiful. Like it, it, it conveys to us that, that that's, this is where God ultimately answers our questions or answers the problem of suffering or the problem of being distanced from him. Uh, the, the apostles call it a, a mystery revealing or a veil lifting idea, a secret that's being disclosed that, that now all our answers are found on the cross. Like when every type of question we ask or problem we have ultimately uh, is resolved by God when he becomes human and dies among criminals uh, on a cross for us. And so I think, I think it, it leads us to kind of like, it beckons us to that mountain time and time again, to hear God call out to us. And like we were just saying from the vantage point in Genesis 22, I think uh, it, it similarly calls us to listen to God say, I love you from these stories. I love you from these Psalms. I love you from these poems and prophecies all over scripture. It's that, it's that, you know, that, that resounding kind of repeating song that never changes. Um, and so, so that's, that's my kind of two cents quick is, is to kind of draw a line underneath verse four and to see uh, a whisper of Calvary. Laura, how about you? Oh, sorry, Davis, if you had something there too. Oh yeah. I was just going to say, I, th I think, uh, and this is brief, but it's something we've mentioned on the podcast before, but can't really overemphasize this, overemphasize this enough. And I, I run into this a lot just in ministry that the Psalms can feel so distant from people because it talks about enemies so much, right? Like even this one begins with how many are my foes? They rise up against me. And verse six talks about how, how I won't fear though. Tens of thousands assail me on every side. Uh, and so it's it's easy to go like, well, I just don't, I can't relate. This is not my experience that I have armies rising up to try and take my life like David did. Uh, but again and again and again, we want to point out that really at the end of the day, you can summarize the Old Testament in three words know your enemy. <laughs> that's that's kind of Israel's story that they they failed to recognize that their real enemy was not actually a people group, though it, though they presented as such. You know, you can think of the Exodus story thinking, well, my real enemy is Egypt. Okay, well, they get out of Egypt and what happens? They all die in the wilderness. Why? Why? I thought the enemy was vanquished. Well, God is kind of showing them they weren't your biggest problem. And in fact, the whole reason the law comes along is to reveal there's a greater enemy and he's way closer than over there, right? He's closer than the very shirt you're, we you're wearing right now. Your enemy resides on the inside and his name is sin and he leads to death. This is the enemy and it's it's more than 10,000s, right? This is the thing that trips us up left and right. And it's the, vo the voice of the enemy does sound like verse two. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. In other words, sin and the and the capital E enemy, Satan, and the world, they all share that same voice saying, God will not deliver you, so you need to deliver yourself. And wherever you're feeling that right now, that is a voice of 10,000s of enemies that are near you speaking, you need to rescue yourself. You need to pull yourself up. You need to lift yourself up, up by your bootstraps. And that is a voice from the pit of hell that is not actually true. Why? Because like Chris just said, 
God is the one calling from the mountain on, on Mount Zion specifically saying, I'm going to lift your head up high. It comes from my death that you might, that you might rise again. Uh, but really just want to overemphasize, know your enemy. You do have enemies. Uh, and it's not that person that's on the other side of the political line. It's that person that you look at when you shave in the morning or brush your teeth. The person that I look at when I shave every morning. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was speaking to the other 50% of the population. This is why I added brush your teeth, right? This is yes. <laughs> but I, no, I accept it actually, Laura, because you threw shade. That was good. Yes. We've all you asked, you asked, and now you shall receive. Present company was included. I receive it. I receive it. <laughs> yeah, no, and I love that, Davis. And, you know, going from there, you know, right near the end um in verse seven there it says for you strike all my enemies on the cheek you break the teeth of the wicked and you know god has dealt with our enemy with our sin but he did that by becoming the sin right for he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf um and even this imagery you know you you strike all of my enemies on the cheek you know in john 18 we see when jesus was being interrogated by the high priest the high priest actually strikes him and so you have this picture of the law actually striking jesus like jesus taking that strike from the law on our behalf even though he is literally the one person who didn't deserve it um and he's absorbing that. And, you know, like you were saying, Chris, in verse four, and he answered me from his holy hill and he answered us from the cross. And even going back to Genesis 22 with Abraham, you know, he's saying the name of the mountain and it says the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And that's through the cross. And I, ju I just think, you know, the, the gospel is so audacious, right? It's just crazy the way that it played out it just was so out of left field um almost and so you sometimes i feel like i can read this kind of psalm and like yeah he's gonna crush my enemies but then it's very sobering to remember like ooh, actually he was crushed because i am ultimately the enemy of god but by him being crushed that bridge was gapped right hmm. well, that's so good yeah, the the last thing I was going to add too is uh, even based on this, I know I don't know a single person who doesn't struggle with sleep at some point in their life. You know, like we just wake up and in the middle of the night, and we we got a lot going on. Like our our the track just begins to run, like of all the things we need to do. I think I, I, I seriously I can't I can't think of a single person who that doesn't happen to at some point in their life. And so to see verse verses five and six says, "I lie down and sleep." I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. I, I think the imagery is is accurate. That at least I know when I've woken up at two in the morning and my mind just starts to run through all the things I think I need to do. Usually, there's some form of self salvation behind it that's saying exactly what verse two said. Right? God will not deliver him. And there is a little bit of a prescription here that is very life-giving, especially in light of all those things that the, the two of you just highlighted, and especially of seeing with clarity Jesus taking on the imagery of this passage. And that is to focus on the Lord sustaining you and him being the one who lifts up your head. Mm -hmm. So in the midst of this, the anxiety screaming in the middle of the night, just to even read these verses or recount them in light of the cross that 
This is the one who's sustaining you. Not, but he's not judo kicking your enemies in the teeth. He himself is being crushed. And somehow that folds the Satan's teeth fall out of his mouth. Like his very, his very plan to foil God, it, it crumbles because God, how, how do you fight against that? Right. The, the very plan that Satan is doing to take over God, God's like, yep, I'm going to use that and actually use it against you. Uh, yeah. It's quite, quite remarkable. Yeah. Um, I think that another thing too, Davis, you made me think of there with verse five, like, I think the three of us are familiar with this mantra sometimes in the church that we hear, um, which is kind of tongue in cheek, but it's also very true and meant to encourage is, uh, sleep like someone who believes in the providence of God, you know, like, like sleep at night, put your head on your pillow as though God is awake when you're not, you know, and who is in control of, of everything. Uh, I think that that, you know, that is very true and very encouraging. I think to add a gospel angle to that would be to say that he's in control of our salvation completely, which means we, we are not. And, you know, so sleep is someone who's providential over even the sin in our life, not as though he's the cause of it, but the one who's, who's seated above it, who, you know, who is crushing it with his own heels and feet, you know, who had, who rules it, you know, think of like Adam who, you know, was commanded to basically rule over creepy and crawly things in Genesis two, you know, which sound a lot like demons or, or, or a lot like uh, fallen angels elsewhere in scripture, poetically and pro- prophetically and otherwise. So that, that kind of idea, I think is something that the law could never do. You know, if, if we, we can't sleep when the law has a final word, I think in the story of, of our lives or of scripture, but we can sleep well when God is answering from his holy hill, answering from a place of self-suffering, suffering in love for us. And that being the final word that actually does let us sleep. Yes. And that, that final word actually is a great segue into second Corinthians six, which begins with uh, these opening verses. It says, as God's coworkers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain for he says, and here he quotes the old Testament in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. That's from Isaiah 49. And then Paul takes that and says, I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. From there, for the next, uh, what is it, eight or so verses or 10 verses, he lists out all of these hardships before the Corinthians. And they're, they're not insignificant, and it's not a small list, right? We have, uh, hard, we have hardships, distresses, great endurance, imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights, all these things listing out. So what do you guys do with 2 Corinthians 6, at least the first half? Um, yeah, no, I, I feel like Paul's really unique in terms of like New Testament. I don't know what would you call him a character, but I feel like that's not the right word. New <laughs> Testament person. I don't know. Uh, person, I think. Very, a, a New yeah, Testament person. Testament. Yes, thank you. I think that sounds great. Person <laughs> for $1, Bob. Person. Uh, <laughs> um, but just he's, he's very much... Um, portrayed just by his words and, and, you know, by acts and, and um, I mean, really the whole new Testament just as a very Christ type figure. Um, And I think here, especially with his, you know, I don't know, 20 verse long list of, of things that he's taken on, on behalf of this church. um, It's very Christ-like, right? Like all the afflictions, the beatings, the imprisonments. I mean, we were just talking about that in the Psalms. Um, 
But, you know, even near the end of that, it even goes so far as, you know, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it's very, very Christ-like and very resurrection sounding. Um, and I feel like that kind of allows us to look into this and being able to see like, oh, this is kind of God speaking to me through Paul. Um, and maybe it doesn't have to be so prescriptive. Um for our lives like this is what we need to do in order to live this holy life just like Paul did um but more just descriptive sorry um of what God has done for us through Jesus um and so I think I I love passages like this because I feel like it kind of gives us a glimpse where you know Jesus spoke a lot in the gospels but I feel like passages like this um, the Psalms kind of give us like it fleshes it out almost and um, gives us like a sneak peek window inside of of just his heart for us. Um, so being able to look at this and just, again, be comforted um, and and being able to sleep at night because you see how far he's come to us and how little we have done to earn it or pull him in or, you know, attract him with our great works or whatever. Um but I just, I, I really like it when Paul kind of gets this right. covering on him. Yeah. And that would put us in the place of the Corinthians then, right? right. The Corinthian yep. church, r- rather than instantly in the ministry of Paul and kind of placing ourselves or superimposing ourselves over everything he says, kind of like uh, think of David and Goliath, right? Like as, as opposed to putting ourselves right in David's shoes, uh, we're probably more like the Israelites, the, the cowardly Israelites who didn't want to even try to fight him who are standing on the sides of the ravine watching. Right. And so like who we are in a story really matters, you know, in doing theology with the Bible and, and not being too quick to put ourselves in the place of the hero. I mean, David, you said the parentheses idea, which I love that, you know, so keeping ourselves in the parentheses or the sides of the ravine, or in this case, in the Corinthian church, just like a commoner who is receiving from Paul, then that's where the theology starts to pop. You know, not that we aren't called elsewhere to suffer for others and not that we can't ourselves be Christ figures in how we suffer for other people in our local church context. That's a beautiful thing. But also these are letters, right? These are like love letters. I mean, if, if Paul's writing love to the Corinthians, then isn't that like Jesus writing letters to us, you know, uh, penned and written with his own blood saying, this is how much I love you. And like I see in that same uh, same vein, you see Paul say here that I put no obstacle in anyone's path. Like I, in other words, I'm not adding to the message of grace. I, I'm not putting anything else between people and God except Jesus Himself, who is called that stumbling block uh, elsewhere in the prophets and in 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 the New Testament. So I'm not adding to the to the gospel, and that in one sense authenticates my message as as an apostle. Um, but then he says, he lists out that, that list, right? Those eight verses. Uh, he he lists out basically how his life is full of obstacles. So it's very substitutionary. I'm not putting obstacles in your path, uh, fellow Christian I love in the city of Corinth, and yet my life is full of obstacles in love for you. But my message is not, how dare you not suffer like me? My message is simply, I want you to look at this and see how much God is actually the one who suffered for you. I think last season, Davis, we talked about the translucency of suffering and how like when when you see Paul in this case suffer, we see through his suffering a bit and we see Christ on the other side. And so uh, him being the hero and the ultimate kind of source and uh, type and power and uh, 
person, Laura, person, uh, New <laughs> Testament person. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, in in uh, in in this story. <laughs> so, uh, but Davis, anything you wanted to attack on? Uh, yeah, the translucency of suffering is also my punk rock band name that I started <laughs> since last season. So every time you Very say cool. it, you actually do owe me a dime. So I just oh, want to make sure you let me check. Let me check. <laughs> it's actually 20 cents because you said it twice now. Let's um, see what I've got here. Hold on. <laughs> no, I wanted to, uh, the imperative of this passage and imperative just means when we're called to do something versus indicative would be that which is true. And a lot of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is it just really has a lot of indicatives. It really wants us to reframe that which we know to be true. And there are, of course, imperatives in both the Old and the New Testament, and we, we should never throw those away. In fact, they're, they're life-giving, they're instructive, especially in light of the truth of Jesus and who he is. Um, but the, the call to action here in this passage is one that I think is just worth reflecting reflecting on, and that is for the Corinthians to open wide their hearts, just like Paul did to them. And when I, when I, when I read that, I just, I just think that's such interesting imagery because it implies a closed off heart. And if you just kind of pull that thread throughout the Bible of just why, why do we have closed hearts and what does a closed heart even look like? Um, I think you, you have a lot of imagery that's offered. The first and, and loudest one is that we have stony or dead hearts. Uh, that's the language that's at least given to us in Ezekiel 11, that God promises to give a new heart, a, a new spirit within them. He's going to remove this heart of stone from their flesh and give them a, uh, and give them a heart of flesh. Uh, we're also told that we have uh, distracted hearts. I'm thinking of Jesus with the parable of the sower, that some some people are hearing the word and it and it first kind of begins to show effects in their life. But then the distraction or the cares of this world crowded out uh, and the deceitfulness of wealth even choke the words. So you have this distraction of what our heart is actually given to. Um, then you have uh, a picture of a deceived heart. This is another version of a closed heart that I think the prophet Jeremiah speaks of, that above all things, we have hearts that are deceitful and they make us uh, long after things that are not life-giving. And then maybe my favorite one is Isaiah uh, giving this picture of what a deluded heart looks like, not in the sense of like watering down alcohol, but in the sense of like delusion, like you're at, you have a delusional heart. And he says in Isaiah 44, from the, from the, he's talking about how a guy cuts down a tree and uses the resource that God has given him for, for things like making fire and taking care of himself. But then he uses the same resource that of a God-given wood, and he makes an idol out of it. And he bows down to it and he says, you are my God, save me. And it says a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is this not the thing my right, in my right hand a lie? So a closed off, deluded heart looks like us worshiping dead, dumb things, which who among us can say we're, we're clean of such a sin, right? Like that is mm. every day my heart is looking at things that are lifeless and I'm saying, give me life, save me, rescue me. Uh, over and over and over again. And so it does just beg the question that how our hearts opened, right? Like Paul is saying, open wide your hearts. Well, well, where, where were we just hanging out in this passage, right? Paul is showing them, look at not only me as in my sufferings for you, but I'm just a picture, right? I'm just a glimpse of the one who has an open wide bleeding heart for you. In fact, uh, this is one of the things that I love about the Catholic church is that ancient sacred heart image that they have of Jesus, 
because he's he's holding out his wide open heart one that's the heart is literally bleeding it's it's like on fire it's kind of illumined um, and then it has this sword going through it like it's a pierced heart and it's got a crown of thorns on it but it is a it's an amazing picture of what I think Paul is inviting us into which which is to say you can't open your heart it needs to be opened for you but this is what God is doing this is the whole reason he came to earth to die to have his heart pierced um, by a sword that we might be able to see clearly. Uh, That's with my that, t-shirt or uh, my t-shirt or band name is dead, dumb thing. I think so. Dead, dead, <laughs> yeah. Maybe t-shirt. <laughs> that means basically that's a, that's a good anthropology maybe right there, but for all of us. So, um, I, I was going to uh, make another joke on it, but I thought it would be mean. And I think I've thrown too okay. much shade today. So I'm just, I'm not going to call you that. You yeah. can call yourself that. And that I was calling myself that. Yeah, yes, not, yeah. definitely no, not. I could have added, added fuel to that, but I'm, I'm going to let it sit. Dead dumb uh, thing. Let's go. <laughs> I will have uh, my band name ready by the next episode. By okay. the way. I'm so sorry. I didn't come prepared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the red tree punk pod is what we are now <laughs> going by. Well, let's talk about the easiest uh, passage to get wrong because it is so difficult. You like how I frame that, that of the parable of the shrewd manager in Luke 16, it begins with Jesus telling his disciples a parable. And he says, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So the parable begins with Jesus describing this rich man who's firing the guy who's over all of his accounts because he's been wasteful with his possessions. Well, the rest of the parable is the manager going, uh, how do I save my own skin? And he goes to the accounts or the debtors that owe his master money, and he just slashes all of their payments. So it cuts one in half, cuts one to 80%, um, and brings them all in. And then we pick up the parable in verse 8, where the master actually commends the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. This is what we're given as a description from Jesus of what's happening in the parable. And it has been tripping people up for 2000 years but we are here to solve <laughs> this passage in our but what about section on the red tree pod season two episode one ready go laura also didn't know Chris, that that, that, we, that we are we are attempting to solve this uh tons of surprises for her today with, uh, with great humility we approach the solution <laughs> to this passage what did the i sign up for the only episode that we need to do on the bible right here yeah right right <laughs> I, I think since you know we're starting a new, a new season, I think it's helpful just uh, to maybe go over again how uh, parables can can mean they can have layers, right? It, there's uh, it, I remember hearing a long time ago that parables have one lesson, one and only. I don't know where that comes from or who first said that, but it's definitely not a biblical concept, and it's certainly not I think a more broadly a scriptural one. Uh, we you know we like to refer to scripture as a multifaceted diamond, and I think each parable is a diamond as well. Um, at, at the kind of the center of that would be Christ and him crucified. And so every facet needs to somehow show a dimension of that uh, direct or indirect. But, um, but I think that kind of helps us with a parable like this, like there's a lot going on and there can be kind of multiple lessons that can all complement and, and so forth um, on a kind of a, an initial level. And, um, and I'll just kind of say a couple of things here. You guys can chime in, but I think on, on, on one level, what you do see is you see, this uh, a story of of a master or a manager who is kind of cast out 
and who incurs suffering and who lessens the debt of others uh, and, and makes friends uh, kind of in the wake of that, which uh, again, as we, as we ask the question, where is Jesus and not just the man Christ, but the sufferings of Christ in uh, the, the sort of the, the, the myriad pages and, and genres of scripture. I think that's what you end up seeing here is the parables are another one of those echoes uh, and, and whispers. It's a kind of a longing ahead to the cross where Jesus would be that true one who would literally lessen debt, right? That's kind of what you see at a 30,000 foot level, at least you see debt lessening um, that welcomes people into homes. It's it, it just, Jesus talks this way, right? He, he talks as the one who's a friend who is like family. Uh, he, he's actually making the, the manager here. He's making business associates or clients friends, which is precisely what the gospel does. The, the new covenant claims to swoop in and, and turns servants or enemies into friends and family adoption being one of the kind of the, the big images of that, but something the law never did. It sort of kept us at bay, right? Uh, it had its moments of, of kind of revealing glory, but it always st- said, stay away from me, stay out of my home. Don't get too close. Uh, it was unkeepable in that regard. But I think what you see here in the story is the opposite of that happening. You see, um, business associates and sort of servants and clients take on the role of friend by way of this individual who lessens debt, which is precisely what Jesus does for us um, on, on the cross. Laura. Yeah, for sure. I, I, this one was a tough one. (laughs) I definitely, you know, went through it quite a few times and um, I did, I was kind of running up against that wall of it just kind of like seemed uncomfortable almost to read it like things this just didn't seem fair this just like why is jesus saying this like you know and i i kind of used google as as a as a help aid and just kind of was trying to see what other people said and there was a lot of landmines out there i will say a lot of very works-based uh blogs about this one you know there was one that went so far as to say like this is jesus calling us to be selfish you know and and <laughs> make things you know make sure that we're taken care of and i you know next <laughs> i feel like maybe that missed the mark i don't know um but i feel like that i that i feel like almost that's like a a good part of this passage because oftentimes I feel like we think that the gospel is this super comfortable thing that is just easy to rest in, which I think the entire Bible kind of tells us otherwise, right? Like there's this dichotomy between grace and law that is always running up against each other. Like it's, it's not some of one and some of the other, like it's just this or that. Um, And, you know, even this passage talks about how you can't serve two masters. And I think he is calling out like you can have law or you can have grace, but you can't have both. And I think the audacity of this passage where people are getting their debt, you know, canceled without earning it, without deserving it, um, you know, and this coming off of the coattails of the prodigal son, which comes right before this, it's very much like that, like, well, that's not fair. And, you know, I feel like we can read this dishonest manager passage and be like the prodigal son's brother. We're like, dude, like I worked my debt off. What the heck? (laughs) You know? Um, But I think that's the crazy part of the gospel where we have to sit in this discomfort zone where we have to just say like there, you know, grace is a free for all, right? Like 
we're going to see people in eternity that we're going to be like, well, what the heck? Like, you know, and is it, is it, are we going to be like, well, I tried so hard and this guy didn't try very hard. Or are we just going to be excited because this guy was excluded and he was running around canceling people's debts that didn't deserve it, including our own. Um, I just, I, I think it's with passages like these that kind of like get in your, get stuck in your teeth a little bit. I think that is part of it, right? That kind of chafes at you. But I think the gospel is meant to do that and kind of get under your skin and to remind you that it's like, you can't do this without me, right? Like it's not from your hill mm. that you that you built that salvation comes, right? It's right. from the hill of the Lord, from the cross that was planted in that hill, from the the striking of the enemies that happened um, on the face of Jesus. Um, I I don't know this one. Yeah. Has a- it's I think one of those things that gets stuck in your teeth is this question of, well, wait a minute, Christians aren't supposed to be dishonest managers right? Like, isn't that, that's kind of a bad thing, right? And um, it's not condoning the sin here by any stretch, but I think, you know, it, it's to say that we all are though. We, we all have, we all this past tense nature to us. We have this, um, there's this unfairness being shown to us, you know, to our favor, this grace, but it's sort, sort of like um, it, in the meantime, we get stuck, right? When we start to operate by fairness and operate kind of in a tit for tat kind of way or conditional way. Um, and I think like his his audience here is the Pharisees still, right? I think he's telling these parables because there's people around that do like to count. They like to measure. They they like to keep score. And this is this is the problematic nature of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, in, in my economy and in the kingdom, uh, that actually isn't a thing anymore. Like, because grace doesn't measure. And uh, it's all obviously, you know, and th- this is to our to our benefit. This is to the glory of God and to His fame. And but it also, in the meantime, like you said, Laura, it, it gets stuck in our teeth a little bit, and it's it's difficult. But but dishonest managers have a place in God's kingdom. I mean, that's kind of the that's that's the strange, offensive, but but beautiful thing, especially when we realize, you know, oh, I'm I I'm dishonest. Uh, you know, you you mentioned. Uh, you know, looking around the kingdom and saying, what are you doing here? Well, people, you know, people are going to say that to us too, right? Like, it's not just us saying that about others. They're going to be like, whoa, what's Chris doing here? Uh, and, and Laura and, and, and Davis. And so um, that's that great ground leveling thing. I think that, that the gospel brings us that, that leads us to the, the, um, the, uh, the green pastures of, of the good news of, of Christ crucified. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. If you like what you've heard, please do drop us a rating or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.